This hour is being brought to you by Menards. Save big money at Menards. The Bernstein and Holmes Show. Middays 10 a.m. till 2 on Chicago Sports Radio 670 The Score. Dan Bernstein. Nope. Lawrence Holmes. Anthony Heron. This is why I always talk about the concept of someone else owning something that you love. The White Sox and White Sox fandom have been beaten down. Someone texted in and they were like, yeah, we're consistently being kicked in the rocks. And at some point, there's a breaking point where you lose all trust. And I guess winning is the way out with the White Sox. I think it's a bigger problem. I think their relationship with their fan base has a a thinner line than they even understand. Bernstein and Holmes, your midday destination for Chicago sports talk. All right. Uh, We are obviously very pleased to be able to bring Elvis Andrus back. Expectation that he will very likely be the everyday second baseman. On Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. That's right. That was Rick Hahn talking this weekend about Elvis Andrus being back in a White Sox uniform. One of the few things that the White Sox have gotten correct this offseason. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Hey! Positivity. That that other voice you hear is the voice of Big Ant Heron. He's going to be with me until 2 o'clock. Dan is off today, so the two of us are going to get an opportunity to hang out. Here's what we got going on. Clark Kellogg is going to join us at 1040. Deshaun Reed is going to join us at 11 o'clock. We are going to talk about uh, a, a little interview that I had with Olin Krutz that I want to share with you. Sahadev Sharma is going to join us at 1225. Jared Payton joins us at 1 o'clock. So, Big Ant, thank you very much for, for jumping on, heeding the call when we found out that Dan was out and rushing mm-hmm. f- from one of your mm-hmm. other jobs, one of your 12 other jobs to come and hang out with me. <laughs> well, what is what is that that siren? Do we have a, a Big Ant the cla- siren? The clarion the call. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm here, my brother. I am here looking forward to the next four hours. Plenty to discuss. Some of it. That broke just moments before we came on the air that I'm looking forward to getting into. I was even asking our guy Cody Westerlin about yesterday when I was in for Parkins and Spiegel. Well, let's get into that right now. Let's talk about Lonzo okay. Ball. Lonzo Ball, it, it, there's an update from the Bulls, and I will read it. And, you know, these are the moments where I go, should I take my glasses off or should I keep them on? <laughs> uh, but I'm still able to read it with my glasses, so I don't quite need the is bifocals like a yet. Preferred distance when you're reading it from your phone, or is it just about the like the size of the screen, the font that it's in? I, I'm all about all of those things. Mm. And what I found is that I actually do a better job of reading the screen when it's down. Okay. But that ends up because you know you end up on planes and stuff, lo- uh-huh. looking at your tablet or your phone, and right. that ends up hurting your neck. Um, but my neck, my back, my neck, and my back. Um, <laughs> I give me a backyotomy. That is not what Lonzo Ball needs. This yeah. is a statement on behalf of Chicago Bulls Executive Vice President of Basketball Operations, Arturis Karnaschovas. Quote, despite making significant increases in strength and function over the past several months, Bulls guard Lonzo Ball continues to experience performance-limiting discomfort during participation in a high-level basketball-related activity. Considering the required time period to achieve the necessary level of fitness to return to play in the current stage of the NBA season, 
Ball will not return this season. The focus for Ball will continue to be on the resolution of his discomfort and a full return for the 2023-2024 season. Close quote. All right, Big Ant, you hear that as someone that's gone through injuries and played through injuries. What do you hear? I There's nothing about what I've heard regarding Lonzo Ball's knee that makes me believe it's a career ender. That being said, when you're missing this extensive amount of time and the discomfort that that is still there at this point, you do wonder, okay, so what's the threshold? If you know, for, for this amount of time, if the knee doesn't feel back to normal, there's going to be a new normal, and at what point do medical professionals, at what point do the Bulls, at what point does Lonzo Ball feel comfortable returning to explosive activities that that will likely continue to be uncomfortable, that, that will likely feel different than they felt before this current situation that he's in? Are there other procedures that are possible, that are plausible to you know get him back to a point where he's probably not going to be as explosive as he was prior to all this, but is there another procedure, even if it's minor, that they feel like they can do to put him in a better position, or are the procedures, are the medical interventions done, and now it's just about time removed from the most recent surgery, and then you hope that, that time on task. As we've seen, you know, Zach Levine's knee injury, obviously a different one, but we have seen that time on task has gotten Zach Levine back to a point where he at least looks physically comfortable. There's a lot of, you know, we can have discussion about Zach Levine and mentally and emotionally and some of those things, but physically, Zach Levine looks back to being an explosive athlete. We don't know what he goes through off the court and in the training room and everything else, but can Lonzo Ball get back to a point where he can move with urgency, with explosion, without being concerned for the effect it has on his knee? And that's that's going to be a really tough question to answer until he really gets back to trying to trying to implement you know some explosive movements full tilt. I am concerned that this is career threatening for Lonzo Ball, and the reason is they haven't been able to determine why he's still having pain, and and now you're you're talking about being a, a year in. Where they haven't figured out why you're having pain, and and if you've gone through a couple of procedures, and they still don't really know what's happening, I I do wonder if, if we're ever going to get the Lonzo Ball that that they had envisioned uh, when they were they were making this this decision to rebuild the roster and 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 try to build something new with him being this team's point guard. It's scary. I feel for like I, I want to make sure that we we do talk about the the human side of this story. Mm-hmm. I feel for Lonzo Ball, and and it it sucks for us who are fans of the Bulls because you you haven't really gotten a chance to see if this would work uh, at a championship level, and it stinks that he's he's not able to play. But the concern is. It didn't seem like the Bulls had a backup plan. They didn't have right. a contingency for this. And I get it. When you're going out and you're spending that type of money, you're not thinking that you even need a contingency plan. Or you're thinking that the contingency plan is you brought in DeMar DeRozan, you're, you extended Zach Levine, like all of this stuff, and, and you're still out here trying, and, and now you're turning over every rock. Now it's, 
we've got to get point guard help. Mm-hmm. Well, if, at first it was Io. Let's see if Io is ready to to command a team of veterans. Teach okay, someone to play NBA point guard at a high level. Right. Uh, and, and then it's all right. Well, we went and got Goran Dragic, but if it were seven years ago, it would be a perfect move. But considering his age and health, it, that hasn't worked. And now you're you're in the buyout market, and you're saying, well, Patrick Beverly needs to come in here, and 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 maybe he can help Io be a better point guard, and maybe he can be a, a leader for this team. And and that has me stuck on. I, I heard all these stories. Dan and I were talking about it last week or two weeks ago where I think it was one of Cowley's pieces where he quoted someone who said, Caruso is the culture. And I'm like, that's cool, but that hasn't taken over right. at all. Right. If you had more guys playing like, like Caruso was, this team would be in a much better place. Do you realize, mm-hmm. Big Ant, that the Bulls haven't been 500 since early November? It's ridiculous, man. It's ridiculous. It's wild. Yeah. And to the thought of Caruso being the culture, I, I think Caruso is probably the culture the Bulls aspire to, mm-hmm. the culture that they would like to have established, a culture of intensity and attention to detail. That, that's not who they are as a squad. That's not who they've been the entire season. So maybe part of the thought would be right, bringing in a Pat Bev, maybe you have another veteran presence who, who helps establish kind of a, a day-in, day-out attack mentality that, that this current roster has lacked all season. But that you know Caruso being the culture, it sounds good, but that's not what the Bulls show when they take the court. The Bulls show kind of an, an antithesis of Caruso-like uh, focus and, and attention and intensity. So if if they can if they can muster more of that, I mean, right now it's looking like if they muster more of that, they're still looking like a playing game squad. Not even a team who's like legitimately in that top six in, in the postseason picture. But you know, I, I think not having Lonzo Ball for this extended period of time because he he'd been a guy even prior to joining the Bulls that had missed chunks of time, mm-hmm. you know, here and there. So you, you kind of bake that into the, the thought that, all right, we, we'll just need to kind of cover up for whatever brief stretches he misses. You, you don't sign a guy to that type of contract expecting him to, to miss this chunk of time, of course. But it just shows the holes in the Bulls roster. It has showed the extent of how this roster has been, you know, hasn't been built in a way that, that allows you versatility, that, that allows you – multiple guys who can be real floor generals for you you know like all right zach levine has been at at earlier stretches even in his bulls career before demar Derozan was here yeah he's been the high usage rate guy been a main ball handler but not a guy who who uplifts the the rest of the team it's one point cody westland was making and talking to him yesterday and demar Derozan a higher-level performer than Zach Levine, you could still make a very similar case. He is not a guy who performs in a way that, that bolsters, that enhances those around him. And so when Lonzo Ball is your only force multiplier and then he's out, it just shows what a deep hole this roster has been in with perimeter shooting, with intensity and communication on defense, and with just floor generalship at large. And you know when you don't have Lonzo Ball – and it, there's seemingly no one else who can come close to filling that void. 
No doubt about it. It's uh, it's really upsetting. And, you know, the, the Pat Bev thing isn't official yet, but it's it's coming. It's coming in the next, I would say, the next few hours or next couple of days. Well, we'll talk specifically about that a little bit later on in the show. We need to take a time out. When we come back, I, I ran across a tweet from a White Sox fan last night that completely encapsulated my feelings about the White Sox this year. And, and it was not too long after the Elvis Andrew signing. So I wanted to go through it, talk a little bit about it, and get Big Ant's thoughts on it as well. We're going to have a conversation about that. It's the Bernstein at Home Show. Dan is off today. Big Ant is here with me. We'll talk a little bit of White Sox next here on The Score. Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Elvis Andrews has demolished baseballs and that is wonderful timing to left field. Elvis Andrews again. Home run number five for the Sox today. One of the smartest players in a White Sox uniform last year is back in a White Sox uniform. The White Sox announced the signing. It had a uh, a good feel to it, kind of Dexter Fowler-ish, him showing back up at Camelback Ranch like and that. White Sox players having fun with it. It's the Bernstein at Home Show, Lawrence and Big Ant today. What were you eating during the break? Uh, cereal. So that was my, my breakfast, essentially. Okay. Was, uh, after I finished my Big Ten radio show for Sirius XM, I normally, and the breaks are much shorter there, so I normally don't have time to kind of sneak in breakfast. So usually, even before <laughs> I do uh, you know, my segments with uh, you and Dan on Mondays, my breakfast will be in between the end of my Big Ten radio show and when I come on with you and Dan. Got enough time to do that there. This, the, uh, the respite between Big Ten radio and 670 The Score was a bit shorter, so I, I was squeezing my breakfast in in the commercial break. What's the cereal of choice? Ooh, interesting you should ask. So normally, I'll go with either Special K or Honey Nut Cheerios. Now, today, I had just enough Honey Nut Cheerios to kind of coat the bottom of my massive bowl that I eat out of here. I'm throwing it to the folks in Twitch. So that wasn't going to be enough to get it done. I polished off the box of Honey Nut Cheerios and then just doused it in Special K and then sliced up a bunch of bananas, and I've been going to town on that during the break. All right, that seems like a, a quality choice for breakfast. Yeah. Twitch.tv slash Chicago 670 The Score. We're, we're both working out of our home studios. There we are. So, you know, I've, I've got the bobbleheads up, big ants right there filling up the screen because, you know, he's a giant man. It so, looks like a gorgeous day outside, by the way. Just like based off of the, the corner of your window that I can see that maybe Twitch isn't completely able to see here, but it looks really nice outside based off the view I have of your home. I really, really like the way that this, uh, like when I bought this place, like part of the reason that that it appealed to me is because at the time we were obviously doing shows from home, mm-hmm. so I needed a smaller room mm-hmm. with some. I I love natural light, yeah. so having just a little bit of natural light, like the sun won't be intrusive and and you know, totally wash out the picture. <laughs> but yeah, it's not bad out there. Like I can see into the courtyard and. Not bad. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a it's a good choice for uh, a little studio for sure. Looks like. All it. right. So so before we went to break, I promised that I would I would read a tweet. This is someone who I I found out yesterday follows me. Now they got retweeted 
from our buddy Socks Machine Josh. Hmm. And I was looking at it, and I was like, man, like this is pretty much it. Now, this was – his tag is Carlos Quentin Tarantino, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, he, he wrote, after listening to the Socks Machine and Socks Machine Josh today, I'm going to buy the cautious optimism with a few caveats. Still want the front office gutted. Still want Clevenger gone. Still won't spend my money. But the biggest still is I love this team, and it's mostly a group I want to see win. That does a, a, a pretty good job of encapsulating how I feel about the White Sox right now. Like When I think about the core of this team, Tim Anderson, Lucas Giolito, uh, Eloy, even with all of his flaws, like I hate that Abreu's not here um, because obviously like he was a part of that. Liam Hendricks, like you start looking at some of the guys that are on this team, and they were presented to us in a way that made you feel like things were changing, and mm-hmm. they went with the concept of the marketing concept of change the game, <laughs> and I think that the White Sox fans really bought into it, and then they sabotaged it because while you're out here changing the game, you went and hired the baseball police to unchange. <laughs> The, the game, and so that didn't go well. And then you have this situation with Clevenger, and that doesn't feel great, whatever the outcome of this is. But it's still a group at its core that I find myself going, man, I, I, I want them to win. Like, I want Tim to win. I want Eloy to win. I, I want Michael Kopech to Not win. Not just for yourself as a Sox fan, but there's a core here that it feels like, man, it would be fun to watch them have success, right? Yes, there's no doubt about it. Like I I I wanna I wanna see them succeed because it's not like we haven't seen it. You know, we, we saw this team a couple three years ago take that giant step forward. Now, granted, it was in a sixty game season. But they took a giant step forward, and then it kind of felt like, ah, well, they're 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 in it, but you never believed that they were gonna win a playoff series. They they the Astros are to the White Sox what the Yankees are to the Twins when it comes to the playoffs. Like they're just they're they're just better than you. Mm-hmm. But you were hoping that your team would mature in a way that it would allow for it. Like I'm still someone who really likes Yoan Moncada. And I know that he is a divisive figure amongst White Sox fans right now. People are not sure how to think about him because he's one of those guys where he's blessed with immense talent, but it never seems to come to fruition. The Elvis signing put me back on, like, I would say cautiously optimistic ground. I still think that they're short at a couple of positions, and not having Liam there is definitely going to be problematic. But I'm having a hard time, as angry as I am with the organization, and I'm furious with them. Yeah. On, a, on a lot of different levels, I'm angry with them. I still love the guys for the most part, and I'm having a hard time like reconciling that. They at least did something that makes sense with the Elvis Andrews signing. And it's it's a low bar, but at least with that, all right, now you're you're strengthening 
your middle infield. You're, you're enhancing your defense, which was such an issue for this squad all of last season, both in the infield and the outfield. And so you at least bring in someone who plays the game with a high IQ and yes. who should be able to to be. You know, we were talking about a, a force multiplier in the previous segment from a hoops perspective. You would hope Elvis Andrews can be kind of a force multiplier for the way that this entire team attacks the, the task of defense that is going to be so important, so vital to success with the new rules in baseball. And, you know, I mean, part of it is I think the, the hope that Sox fans have had for a while now just that this team that seemingly was handling things in a way that was kind of building towards sustainability by signing all these really talented players in that rebuilt farm system to long-term deals after they had shown enough at the minor league level. All right, before you get up to the majors and let's get these deals in place. And then like you referenced, that first season, it, it looked like something was there, something that could be built off of. Are they just a closer away? You know what? Let's go get the closer who was mowing everybody down. And you bring right. Hendricks in here. And now the last couple of seasons, it, and the, the, the LaRusso signing, we certainly don't need to relitigate that entire thing. But if, if nothing else, even with the embarrassment of how it began, you just saw game in, game out, month in, month out, season in, season out, that it wasn't working with him for a variety of reasons. Now there is a chance to restart this. And, and they're hoping that they at least claim they're hoping that's the case. But then you, you get into this offseason and, and the Cleverage storyline has dominated all of that. And then you don't have Hendricks and everyone's concerned for, for his health with very good reason. It's hard to know what, what a legitimate expectation for this team is because it feels like they have underachieved so much. Yes. But to your Moncada point, to, at what point is it no longer underachieving and this is just who they are? And that's the difficult thing to kind of parse right now because you still got guys in their mid to upper 20s in age, but they've been at the major league level for a while now. So how long is it underachieving? At what point is it just, you know what, this is just who they are? A texter says, I agree with you about the feelings about the team. I also want to like Pedro Grifol. Yeah, I, I, I found myself when they made that hire, and there were other people that I thought made sense. But when I heard Pedro Grifol, uh talking about what his philosophy was, when I heard him on Shane's podcast, I, I was sitting there going, all right, if this is a guy that is capable of holding players accountable, yeah. th- that's one of the things that they've been missing. If he can reach some of these players that that seem like they're not reachable. And, and one of the failings of the, the La Russa hire is just a lack of engagement. And I don't know if that's anyone's fault. I mean, the guy was 77 years old. I I just don't think that he, he he could stand there with a fungo bat. I just don't think that he was really in it the way that you want a manager to to be in it and really working with these guys. So if Grafol's got the Kind of like next-level John Fox when the Bears yeah, brought it, in. It, John it, Fox it felt, was like, all right, you're done. But nobody really knew for sure John Fox was done. Everybody but the Sox knew Larusa was done. No, you're right, and and it's the concept of the CEO manager, mm. and 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 maybe you can Bobby Bowden like that worked for a little while towards the end of of his career, but yeah, it was it was ugly, and and it's going to be something that I fight with all season long, and I really hope that they get off to a good start because that would help. Because if they don't, whew, it's going to be rough. How about we switch to the backdrop? Let's talk to an expert. 
Clark yep. Kellogg is going Ooh. to join us in the next segment. We're going to talk some college buckets with him. We will do that next here on The Score. Dan Bernstein, Lawrence Holmes, Middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. I mean, it is that time of year. That music kind of always makes you feel good because you know that the tournament is near. We are getting ready to have a conversation with CBS college basketball analyst Clark Kellogg, who's also going to be doing an event at the event center at Rivers Casino on March 9th. Get your tickets today for an inside look at his career, followed by a special Q&A session. Plus, hear Clark's picks for this year's college basketball tournament days ahead of the big bracket reveal. After the event, visit Bet Rivers Sportsbook to place your bets. Special meet and greet tickets are available. Doors open at 5, show begins at 6. Go to riverscasino.com for tickets. And now we welcome Clark Kellogg to the show. It's the Bernstein at Home Show. Dan is off today, so Big Aunt Heron is there with me. Clark, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you and Anthony Lawrence. Um, obviously, this is an exciting time of year for those of us who have the privilege of being part of college basketball, whether we're fans or broadcasters, certainly the coaches and players start to ramp it up even more. So thrilled to be able to join you guys to talk um, talk a little bit of um, what's on the docket as we head towards March. I love the idea of you sitting down and doing a, a Q&A. This is obviously like what any college basketball fan or just basketball fan would want. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping comes out of this event that you're doing with Rivers? Well, the people would enjoy it, that they maybe get a look behind the curtain uh, from the standpoint of how we prepare at CBS Sports to bring one of the great sports events on the calendar to life. Uh, my journey, I've actually, I actually started at CBS. My first Final Four, um, guys, was back in 1997, so I've been at it over almost three decades having the wonderful privilege of being um, courtside either in the studio or um, at the games uh, and this, you know, being part of this wonderful, wonderful phenomenon that's March Madness. Um, So I hope people are able to be informed and entertained and hopefully uh, I may help them land on a good pick in their bracket when the bracket comes out a little, a few days after um, I spend some time with them. How many brackets do you tend to fill out? Are you a multi-bracket kind of guy? You know what, Anthony, I used to do multiple. I would do a couple publicly for our website, cbsports.com, and then maybe locally. I live in Columbus, Ohio, so I might post one somewhere locally, and then I might do a family one. But over the years, the last dozen years or so, I've pretty much uh, just done two. I do one uh, with some kind of outside-the-box upside picks, and then I do one that pretty much stays close to – to chalk based on the matchups. But the way that Greg Gumbel does it is probably best. He does it in pen after the results. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how you make sure that you get a winner right there. Chicago's very own. That's a a very smart way that he's he's going. You'll never lose if that's your strategy for for sure. Clark, I'm stuck with this year's college basketball because I I feel like this is one of those years where I expect the tournament is going to be bananas. I I just feel like there's a parity between the top 35 teams. Like, I'm I'm an Alabama grad. So, so I look at Alabama and I go, 
yeah, there's a team that can win the national championship. There's also a team that can get knocked out in the second round. Uh, it, it feels mm-hmm. like everything is evened up around college basketball. How, how do you see this year's possible field? You know, Lawrence, I see it the same way you do. You know, we had our bracket preview show this past Saturday, and those four number one seeds, Alabama, your alma mater, was in the overall number one spot. And then you had Houston and Purdue and Kansas on that line. And I feel like those were the teams that deserve, deserve to be there at, that, at this point. They very well could remain there. Um, there might be some shift, but you're right. I think it's a much flatter world, in part because of the extra year that was afforded student-athletes because of COVID, and then you factor in the transfer portal. Uh, teams may not be as elite as we've had in the past few years, but we've had a few teams that stood out clearly, Baylor and Gonzaga, Kansas going back to 08, North Carolina 09. But I can't recall a year where, to your point, those teams that will be seeded eight and nine, I think every one of those teams will be problematic for the one seeds because there just isn't that much separation. You talk 35 teams, when you look at the rankings, and I don't give a lot of credence to them, but they are numbers next to teams' names, so you kind of look at where people fall, and there's not a ton of separation as you go deep into, like you said, 35, 40 teams. And we know how much the tournament is about matchups, um, teams being hot and healthy at the right time. Pressure is always typically tilted towards the favorites if an underdog can stay close and have some matchup parity. So I, I agree. I mean, I'd be surprised if it's um, – even if we don't have the upsets, I think the games are going to be really, really competitive and close. And we will have some upsets. That's just part of the fabric of the tournament. Are we are we beyond the point when you evaluate a program like Houston that plays a, a mid-major schedule that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the amount of NCAA tournament teams Houston has beat is similar to the amount that Nebraska's beat at this point. But yeah. still, they're obviously one of the best teams in America. Them not being tested as consistently by the time they get to the NCAA tournament, though, should that be a concern? That's always good barbershop talk and good fodder for radio stations and debates. And we talk about it off air and even on air at CBS and the other networks talk about it too. Uh, I don't put, again, it's a six-week run to a, it's a three-week run to a championship. You've got to win six games. Uh, you've got to be really good. You've got to be healthy. And you've got to have a little luck to be able to, to withstand the pressure of that compressed um, race to a championship. Um, so I don't put a ton of weight into what conference you come from and whether or not you've been tested enough to win the championship. I think it's more about how good are you and how well do you play. Now, there is some benefit to coming out of the Big 12 where every game is virtually against the tournament caliber team. I mean, that has to sharpen your sword a bit, but I don't think it's always guaranteed that because you do come from that type of rigorous schedule that you would – in a one-game situation, beat a team that's on par with you that just hasn't played in the same level of conference. Clark Kellogg joining us here for a few minutes as we talk about the NCAA tournament. You brought up the transfer portal, and we've talked on this show with a lot of different coaches and people who cover college basketball. I'd love to know what, if any, the thing that you can share from coaches and administrators that you've talked to about how difficult – 
the landscape is right now with yeah. the transfer portal, the extra year for, for all of the COVID students and NIL? Yeah, it's extremely challenging. I mean, it's um, unprecedented, all the change that's taken place in a short period of time. Foundationed on the pandemic, which altered all of our lives in a way that nobody could have ever imagined or prepared for. So we're still continuing to see byproducts of that, and we'll continue to see that for years to come. Um, beyond just the sport of basketball or college sports, you're talking about the lives of young students that miss school time, those that were unable to connect the internet and Wi Fi uh, because of lack of I mean, there's so many layers in terms of the disruption and change and damage that's been done. And college basketball has, has felt some of that. The transfer portal, to me, is a really complex situation because I'm very much in favor of students having the ability to move if things aren't working out where they are without penalty of participation. Um, so I feel good about that. I'm strongly in favor of that. Uh, NIL as well. Um, no student athlete who has the ability to earn a college scholarship through sports should be penalized for earning that scholarship when it comes to being able to do what all students can do in terms of monetizing their name, image, and likeness if they have that opportunity and, and ability to do so. So those things are long overdue, and I'm glad they're on the books. Now, it's created tremendous chaos for coaches, but not just – from the standpoint of building your roster and having to re-recruit players, some of that is a function, guys, of the climate of our culture in terms of how kids now are much quicker to seek what they think is greener grass elsewhere when they encounter headwinds of competition or expectations not being met. I know that's not the case for every kid, but a lot of kids are defaulting to if it's not working here then I'll just go here and it'll be better. And that's not good for them or the game. The flip side is that some of this flatness you see in college basketball, the fact that there are a lot more older, more experienced, good teams across the landscape is a direct result of the transfer portal. So it's cut both ways. Um, it's a challenge for coaches. There's no doubt about it. It's extremely chaotic. NIL because it's gotten away in some places from the intention of what it was designed to do has become problematic and challenging as well. And I think that'll settle down and smooth out over time, but it is uh, another level of stress and um, challenge for, for coaches across uh, college basketball in particular, as we speak about it and, and even college football as well. Clark, we've seen the Northwestern Wildcats finally enter the top 25 this season. They're one of only two Big Ten teams with a winning road record this year in a deep Big Ten conference. And it feels like they they certainly have solidified the, the second NCAA tournament berth in the history of their program. Uh, I'm wondering, now that they are starting to get more national appreciation, but they've pretty much been playing. You talk about experience. I mean, they, they've got one of the most experienced backcourts in college basketball yeah. between Boo Booey and Chase Aldige. Yes. Why, why are we just seeing them start to get appreciated now? Well, again, sometimes it just takes a little while. The uh, results continue to pile up, and eventually the publicity catches up with the results. Uh, there are a lot of factors and dynamics that go into that. 
but they've um, done it the right way. I mean, Chris Collins is built around that tremendous experience, talented backcourt. Complimentary players have stepped up and had really good seasons. They defend at a very high level. I think the coaching staff, the addition of Chris Lowry and, and others on the coaching staff have brought a level of, of um, sophistication to what they do defensively. But ultimately, it's what the kids have been able to do in uh, competing, buying in, improving. And it's a great story. And they're clearly solidly in the tournament field. There's no denying that. And a dangerous tournament team as well. I don't know where they'll end up being seeded. But, uh, you know, sometimes, Anthony, it just takes a minute for the uh, light to shine on those who deserve it. You know, there's so much noise and there's so much attention being garnered by so many that sometimes deserving folks, it takes a minute for them to, to land on the radar screen. But they're there, they've earned their way there, and they'll have a chance to keep amplifying who they are and what they are by their performance. Clark, what makes a great tournament coach? Wow, great question, um, Lawrence. I mean... What makes a really good coach in general? Communication. I mean, the lifeline of college athletics is recruiting. So when you get away from that, then you start talking about the dynamics within the game. I think it's being able to adjust as the game unfolds. If you have to go away from what your comfort zone is to give yourself a chance to win, are you able to do that? Uh, and clearly motivating and communicating, putting your pieces together. Those are all elements. But I think the biggest thing uh, – and specific answer to your question, I think is the, the ability to adjust on the fly, maybe from media timeout to media timeout if necessary. It's rare that has to be the case, but certainly halftime, late game situations, um, personnel issues, whether it's foul trouble or poor performance, uh, that type of stuff really I think is the differentiator when you start talking about separating uh, really good coaches from uh, – from great coaches. The great big man isn't necessarily something a lot of programs have in the same way. You know, a, a true post like Purdue has yeah. in Zach Eady, he's looked at as a front runner. Well, nobody's got to do like him, Anthony. Nobody's got to do like him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can clear that up right now. Uh, uh, Chris Holtman, the coach at Ohio State, basically dubbed uh, uh, Zach Eady the cheat code. And that's exactly what he is. I mean, for those who play video games, uh, a cheat code is a real valuable weapon and asset, and that's what he is. He's 7'4", legit, just shy of 300 LBs, uh, great competitive spirit, um, has really worked on his game, uh, light-footed for a guy of that size. Uh, and, uh, man, he's, uh, he's unique. And um, Purdue has a really good, good one, great kid. Hard worker has improved greatly since he got there, and uh, it's been fun to watch him um, do what he's done. I think he's the player of the year in college basketball. Others will uh, get in the conversation from a distance, but I think he's pretty much solidified that he'll he'll win most of the college of the year um, player of the year awards. Clark, this was delightful. You can go and check out Clark. He's going to have an event at Rivers Casino in the event center March 9th. It's a special Q&A. You can get tickets. So you should go. You can hear his picks, and he's going to tell stories, and there's going to be a bracket reveal. Go to riverscasino.com for tickets. Clark, thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. No, I enjoyed it, guys. Enjoyed the um, run through March Madness, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to chop it up again as the tournament unfolds. Ah, we would both love that, sir. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. All right, Lawrence and Anthony, have a great day. Appreciate you guys. Thanks, Clark. That is Clark Kellogg.
I mean, that just sounds like college basketball right Doesn't there. It? You know, like you're you're ready to go because you know that you're getting top notch analysis <laughs> on on the subject at hand. And I'm glad that I'm not the. I, I texted Dan a few weeks ago, and and I said I was watching like I watched a whole day of college basketball because he was like, hey, we should probably. We should probably start transitioning into talking college hoops. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I was like, you know what? All these teams are pretty even. Right. Like, I, 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 the number one seeds are the number one seeds. But I, I've i already seen, I think it's the most that number one ranked teams have lost after being named number one. <laughs> it's happened eight times this year mm. where – Team elevates to number one, and then they lose. Team uh-huh. Next team elevates to number one, then they lose. And that just says to me that this is a very even tournament that is going to stay that way. And, I mean, even, you know, talking to them about Purdue at the end there. I mean, Purdue is a team that's lost three games recently. and They were the yes. number one team in the country for a big stretch there. And they're going to have the National Player of the Year, like he's talking about with Zach Eady. But in the end... What you're going to do in the NCAA tournament, what you do in March Madness, is where a lot of fan bases are going to judge this thing. But it is an extremely even year. This is a really young Purdue team that Matt Painter has, too. And so to have Zach Eady holding it down in the middle, you know, how do you kind of get your players, get your lineup, get your mentality right to make a run in the NCAA tournament? A lot of it does end up coming down to matchups. We need to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to talk to Tashawn Reed of the Athletic Football Podcast. He's doing a project that's really interesting, so he'll discuss it with us next here on The Score.